This message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Good evening, GYC. Good evening. That was weak. We'll try it again. Good evening, GYC. Good evening. Thank you so much. Has it been a blessing so far today? Amen? Yes. Fantastic. As you've heard repeatedly, at this point you should have heard repeatedly at least, that our theme this year is Fill Me, Our Earnest Plea. And for all intents and purposes, that's just a fancy way of saying the topic, the, the theme that this conference is revolving around is the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. It's an important theme. In fact, speaking of the absolutely critical role of the Holy Spirit, we are counseled, and this is second uh, manuscript release, page 15. It is beyond the power of language to express the blessings the Holy Spirit brings to God's people. If received and appreciated, the Holy Spirit will make us holy, Christ-like. Through its agency, we are united with Christ, partakers of the divine nature, And here's the key. The reception of the Holy Spirit in its fullness is the great need of the church today. It is my hope. In fact, it's my most sincere prayer that tonight will be not just another opportunity to be more informed about the Holy Spirit, but by the grace of God and His indwelling Spirit be transformed into the character of Christ. As we begin to study God's Word tonight, we must begin with a word of prayer. Please bow your heads with me. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You so much for the opportunity of bringing these young people together at GYC. I thank You for the theme that's been chosen. And now, Lord, I thank You that You have promised to give us wisdom through Your Holy Spirit as we open Your Word. Please guide our minds. Lord, sharpen our minds. And where it is needed, Lord, soften our hearts so that we may not only hear the words, but be doers of the word, so we can reflect your character to the world, and by your grace we may hasten your soon coming. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Above all of the other creatures that the Lord God made in the creation week, we're going to Genesis chapter 1, by the way, so I'll give you a head start. Above all the creatures that the Lord God made, He gave humanity, man and woman, man, dominion over everything. And I, reflect on this for me a moment. Why? If someone were to ask you, why was man given the responsibility of dominion over planet Earth, what would be the reason? And many of you would say, well, of course we were given dominion. Who else is going to do it? You know, uh, what are the other options? I mean, we are, we are special. We're unique. We're one of a kind. We're the only ones. In fact, we were, and you might have some theological reasons why we were given dominion of the Earth. You might say, well, we were formed from the dust of the ground. And while that's true, that doesn't make us unique. Apparently, according to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 19, the Lord God formed every beast of the field out of the dust of the ground. Well, you say, "Ah, but uh, we were designed uh, in a plural, man and woman. You know, like, like the Godhead works together in a unity, and they create, and we've been given the ability to procreate. In fact, we were commanded to be fruitful and do what? Multiply. And that's great and it's true. But the problem is the birds and the fish were told to be fruitful and multiply even before man was created. That's not our uniqueness. You say, yes, 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 but but, but we have the breath of life. But according to Genesis chapter 6 and Genesis chapter 7, the flood was given to wipe out all creatures that had the breath of life in them. So, 
It's not that either. And I tell you something, it's not because we're the strongest creatures God ever made. We're not. It's not because we're the fastest creatures God ever made. It's not because we're the best swimmers that God ever made. We're not. We don't have the coolest powers of any of the beings He made. Look around the world. We can't fly. I'd love to fly. I can't fly. We can't breathe water. Fish can do that. I can't do that. You know, we don't have bio, uh, what is it called, luminescence. We don't glow in the dark. That would be awesome. We don't have, we don't operate by photosynthesis. You know, we're not fueled by the sun, which think about that. How great would that be? Every night the sun goes down. When the sun comes back up, you know. It's tremendous, you know, and we'd follow the sun as it goes. No, but I'm living in Michigan now, so maybe that's not the best thing. But those people in Florida and Arizona, boy, I tell you, they'd be strong. I did not see that coming. I'll be honest with you. We're not even the hardiest of creatures. We're actually quite fragile. Think about it. How much luggage did you pack for four days in the wild outback of Houston? All the other animals seem to get by without luggage. We have to carry on and pack in and get... My point is this. What makes us unique is not any physical attribute, but a spiritual something. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 tells us what that is. We get to eavesdrop on the conversation the Lord has with Himself, which is cool. It says in verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1, let us Make man, what are the next three words? I'm sorry, G.Y.C., I just can't hear you tonight. It's so sad. I'm deaf. What was it? In our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27. So God created man, what are the words? In his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, He created them. The spiritual significance of humanity is why we've been given dominion. Turn with me to Psalm 8. Psalm 8, in reflecting on this creation week and the significance, or rather the seeming insignificance of humanity amongst all the other creatures and beings and created worlds that the Lord God had established, look at what the psalmist says. Psalm 8, starting with verse 3. He says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have ordained. Verse 4, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? He's thinking the same thought of all the things that you've made. What what are we? And verse 5, for you have made him a little lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor. Crowned with glory. And then he goes on to say, you have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. But the rationale for that is this crowning with glory and honor. What does it mean to be crowned with glory and how does it relate to being made in the image of God? You know, when I think of the word glory, and I guarantee you're thinking this too, when I hear glory, I think of like shiny, like a gleam. You know, you think about that. When you think of Lord returning in all of His glory, you're thinking brightness and splendor and shininess. Sparkly, maybe. But here, something is different being said. Yes, while there is an outward aspect to glory, 
the greater importance, the real significance is the unseen, the inward glory, which we're going to see tonight is character. Go to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. We're going to go quickly through the Bible tonight. That's not an apology. I'm, I'm just letting you know. Exodus chapter 3. This is the story of Moses being uh, uh, coming upon the burning bush. And he decides to inspect it and go over. And the Lord tells him not to do that. In fact, verse 6 says, Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And notice these words carefully. And Moses hid his face for he was, what's the word? Afraid to look upon God. He was afraid to look upon God. But what's fascinating about this is just go 30 chapters over. 30 chapters to the right. Go to Exodus chapter 33. And this same Moses, who was afraid to look upon God, now in Exodus chapter 33 makes the famous request. Verse 18. And he said to the Lord God, Please show me your what? Glory. In Exodus chapter 3, he's afraid to look on God. In Exodus chapter 33, he's begging for more. What's the difference? Well, I would submit to you that he's a different Moses at this point. The Moses who was wandering around the wilderness, unsure of himself, not being called into the ministry yet, but now the Lord God has used him at this point in a mighty way. He has gone to the, before Pharaoh. He has delivered his people by a mighty hand. He's crossed the Red Sea. They, they stood at the foot of Mount Sinai. They received the law. He's gone up the mountain. He's come close to the Lord. In fact, he's even shared in the sufferings of the Lord and dealing with the Israelites. So much so that when the golden calf of Exodus 32 incident occurred, he begged the Lord, if it's not possible to redeem them, put myself in their place, blot my name out. He's a different Moses. And now he asks for even more of the Lord's glory. And this is crucial. This is crucial, the answer given. Verse 19. Then he said, I will make all of my, what's the next word? Goodness pass before you. Do you see the equivalence? The glory of the Lord is His goodness. And I will make all my glory, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And skip over to chapter 6 of, verse thir- of chapter 34. When it actually occurred, this is what happened. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This is the glory of God. This is His goodness. The glory of God is His character, His goodness, His mercy, His justice, etc., Man's creation in the image of God and being crowned with glory means primarily that God established humanity to reflect the character of His Creator. Mrs. White puts it this way in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 45. Christ alone is the express image of the Father, but man was formed in the likeness of God. Then she explains what she means by that. His nature was in harmony with the will of God. His mind was capable of comprehending divine things. His 
His affections were pure. His appetites and passions were under the control of reason. He was holy and happy in bearing the image of God and in perfect obedience to His will. And you see, it was only with this inward glory, this God-like character, only while that was maintained could their outward glory, the shininess or their garments of light, as we typically refer to it, be maintained. Continue on in the same page, we read these words. The sinless pair wore no artificial garments. Bioluminescence. They were clothed with the covering of light and glory, such as the angels wear. And notice the next sentence. So long as they lived in obedience to God, this robe of light continued to enshroud them. It was this inward glory, this Christ-like character that qualified man as that unique creature formed in the image of God. But of course we know the sacred history. We know that they did not continue to live in obedience. When Adam and Eve rebelled against their Creator, it was this image of God that was lost. As devastating as it must have been to be thrown out of the garden, to have increased pain and to even lose access to the tree of life and and the resulting uh, living forever that came along with it. Those things were subordinate. Those things were secondary to the real loss, which was the image of God in man. How do I say this? Sometimes I think when we present the great controversy theme, we don't tell enough of the story. We need to present the greater controversy, if you will. I mean, we'll talk about the great controversy and we'll say things like, which are true things. We'll go to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and we'll say, do you see that Eden was established and it was good, 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 good. And on day 6 it was very good. And, and it had a, you know, the water that ran through it and downhill. And you had the tree of life in there. had all these beautiful surroundings, this perfect environment. Then sin came in and everything. We lost Eden. And we go through the whole Bible. Then you get to the end of the Bible in Revelation 21 and 22 and you see the restoration of the Garden of Eden. And there's the water of life. There's the tree of life. We show how the bookends of the Bible start with Eden established and Eden restored. But as true and as great as that is, here's my point tonight. The restoration of a place is not the point of the story of redemption. Salvation in Jesus Christ involves the restoration of people themselves. Sometimes I fear, follow this logic. Sometimes I fear that we focus on Christ's promise to prepare a place for us while we neglect the work of the Holy Spirit to prepare us for that place. Do you see the difference? Put it another way. Redemption in Jesus Christ means more than simply His promise to physically transport us to heaven. It includes the far greater promise to spiritually transform us for heaven. Not merely to get us in, but to fit us in before we get there. Do you see the difference? There's a difference between getting in and fitting in. Mrs. White puts it this way in Christian Education, page 64 and 65. Sin has marred and well nigh obliterated the image of God in man. And notice these words. It was to restore this 
that the plan of salvation was devised and a life of probation was granted to man. To bring him back to the perfection in which he was first created, notice these words, is the great object of life. The object that underlies every other. So whatever we do beyond that, the foundation issue in the great controversy is not just restoring a place, it's restoring a people for a better place. Education, page 125. The central theme of the Bible. The theme about which every other in the whole book clusters. If someone asks you that, what's the central theme of the Bible? Apparently that was rhetorical. But you would say, oh, Jesus and his, his life is sacrificed on the cross, you know, to get us to heaven. The central theme of the Bible, the theme about which every other in the whole book clusters is the redemption plan, which she defines as the restoration in the human soul of the image of God. From the first intimation of hope in the sentence pronounced in Eden to the last glorious promise of the revelation that they shall see his face and his name shall be in their foreheads. The burden of every book and every passage of the Bible is the unfolding of this wondrous theme. Man's uplifting. The power of God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, of course, because of our sin problem that does exist, we can't have the open communion with God that our first parents enjoyed. I mean, that promise that Mrs. White referred to in that previous quotation of Revelation 22, that we shall see his face, sounds nice until you counterbalance it with God's warning to Moses back in Exodus 33. You cannot see my face, for no man shall see my face and what? Live. Live. You ever thought about the tension that creates? God's like, you're going to see my face, but if you do, you'll die. Is that good news or not? How can the God of Exodus 33 be the God of Revelation 22? How can we see the face of a God who declares that no one can see his face and live? I'm not going to answer that question for you right now. It'll be later tonight. But I want you to take that idea, that contradiction, that, that paradox. And I want you to place it on a shelf in your mind. Keep it dusted off because we're going to come back to it. Okay? But we didn't have the open communion with God anymore. After the fall... The only way we could see God's glory was in the veiled person of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, describes Jesus as, quote, the brightness of God's glory in the express image of His person. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, says that in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So somehow all the fullness of the Godhead is in the person, and that person is in Jesus Christ. Jesus himself, in John chapter 14, verses 6 and 7, made it very plain. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but what? By me. He goes on to say, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on you know him and have seen him. Go to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, go to chapter 3. 2 Corinthians, chapter 3. Starting with verse 18. The Apostle Paul lays out 
an incredible picture for us. Starting with verse 18, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being, what's the word? Transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Continue on. Go to chapter 4, verse 16. He says, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. That's the amazing thing about this life. It's paradoxical. The longer you live it, you're physically, you die. You get closer and closer to death every day. But if you walk hand in hand with Christ, you actually get renewed in your inner man day by day. This is what Paul's talking about. The outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being, notice the process language, not has been or will be, but is being renewed day by day. And he goes on to say in verse 17, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, and this is a guy who's been beaten, (laughs) this is a guy who's been threatened with his life, he's been shipped, I mean, all kinds of horrible stuff is happening. He calls that light affliction in comparison with the future life. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Why, we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. By not only accepting the sacrifice of Christ, but furthermore, by beholding the character of Christ, as witnessed in His sinless life, His his sacrificial death, His complete victory over Satan and every temptation thrown at Him, we see the glory of God, and through the work of the Holy Spirit, we become more and more like Him. When Paul writes that by beholding Christ we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, he literally means that our character, that inward man, is being molded, it's being refashioned, as if the Lord stooped down once again out of the miry clay and is reshaping you into the image we were originally created to reflect. Sons and Daughter of God, page 125. The Lord Jesus came to strengthen every earnest seeker for truth. He came to reveal the Father. He allowed nothing to divert his mind from, and here's her words again, the great work of restoring the moral image of God in man. And we must see that the great and important work for us is to receive not just his offer to get us in, but the divine likeness to prepare a character for the future life. In heavenly places, 142, again, we are individually now testifying to the world of the power of of the grace of Christ in the transformation of human character from glory to glory, from character to character. Those are her words. In fact, if you want to look up in your little CD-ROM, people don't use CD-ROM, your app, whatever, If you want to look up the phrase, glory to glory, I just don't have time to go into it now, but every single time Mrs. White employs that phrase, glory to glory, or she quotes 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, she always is being referenced in context of developing within us the character of Christ. In fact, 
oftentimes where it says glory to glory, she will literally insert right next to it in little brackets, character to character. She sees an equivalence between the glory of God and the character of God, and that is to be restored in humanity in preparation for the life we're going to live. See, she goes on. In beholding Christ, our pattern, who is pure and holy and undefiled, we are being prepared for the society of the heavenly angels. Have you ever been to a party that you didn't fit into? I mean, you got in, but once you got in, you're like, I just do not belong with these people. Either they were, well, I don't know, I don't know what the difference between you and them was, but you knew it was there. They didn't have to say anything, they didn't have a document, they didn't have a list. You just walked in, you're like, the air here is different. Something smells, it looks, it feels, these are not, no, no. There's a difference between getting in and fitting in. Notice this. She asked this beautifully rhetorical question. It makes so much logical sense. Listen to it carefully. If Christ is to be our head and prince in the heavenly courts, it becomes us to inquire. I love her language. We should ask. It makes sense to question this. If Christ is to be our head and prince in the heavenly court, it becomes us to inquire, what is Christ to us now? Have you thought about that? People who aren't serving God at all somehow fully expect to serve Him with joy in the heavenly courts? It's like if you have the audacity to think you're going to get in, would you fit in even if He lets you? If you're not into Him now, what makes you think your affections are going to change on the way up? The character that will be ours for eternity will not be given at the second coming. It will be developed right here in the life you are right now living this moment. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Paul again comes back to this idea, this theme of the transformation in Christ. Romans chapter 8. Again, notice the very similar language to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, this time Romans chapter 8, starting with verse 18. He says, for I consider, and I love how he considers, I consider this, I think about it, I've thought about it, and I've come to the conclusion, I consider, he's not shooting from the hip, Paul's a thinker, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed, where? In us. But I thought the glory we're waiting for was on the eastern sky with the, you know, the size of a man's hand and it's going to get bigger and bigger. That's the glory we're waiting for, right? He says, slow down. He's like, the sufferings we're going through in this present life aren't anything compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. Look at the next verse, 19. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing and you would expect it to say of the Son of God. What's your Bible say? Sons, small s, plural. The sons of God. Is it possible that the creation 
is waiting not for the Son of God, but the sons of God to reveal the glory of God in us? Amen. Mm. You know, I'll make a shameless plug. There's a fantastic sermon. On, there's a lot of fantastic sermons on Audioverse, but one in particular called The Long Campaign. And the speaker talks about how, if you notice, Christ didn't just destroy Satan immediately. As soon as he rebelled, he didn't just cast. The casting out of the devil wasn't like straight from the courts of heaven down to the grave. It wasn't one shot to the bottom. It was actually more like a slinky on the staircase, right? Like my arm can't do that, but you get the gist. You've played with the slinky. It goes from one step to... In fact, there's four stages of Satan's fall. In the very first stage, when he was originally cast out of the kingdom of heaven, God recognized and rejected his rebellion. God knows everything. He sees the heart. He's like, I know what you're doing. Out! I'm not listening. I'm not playing along. You have no sympathy here. You're done. But he doesn't destroy him. Because apparently the rest of the created beings had not fully understood the contrast between the character of Christ and the character of Satan. But that all changed at the cross. The fury that was within, the violence that Isaiah and Ezekiel talk about being within, was unleashed upon the sinless Savior. In one climactic moment, the entire universe saw the difference, at least the unfallen universe who can watch from 40,000 feet, saw the difference between the character of Christ who would give everything and the contrast between that and the character of Satan who would take everything, even the life of God, if it was possible. Mrs. White says, in that moment, when Jesus died on the cross in a victorious sacrifice, her words are, the last links of sympathy between Satan and the heavenly world were broken. It's like there were people still weighing in the balance. Yeah, we're going to be loyal to God, but at least let's hear Him out. But when they saw the cross, they said, no more. She goes on to say, henceforth his work was restricted. Whatever attitude he might assume, he could no longer await the angels as they came from the heavenly courts. They were done with him. And you know, and finally, and that's step one, is God kicking him out. Step two, he was cast out of the sympathies of the unfallen heavenly beings. I'm going to leap over step three and go to step four. You get the picture. In the final analysis, at the close of the millennium, when the wicked are resurrected to face the final judgment and execution of judgment, in that moment they will too will see the contrast between the character of Christ and the character they have developed through the deceptions of Satan. And not out of love and not out of joy and not out of repentance, but they will say, they will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So if God recognized and rejected the rebellion of Satan, and the rest of the universe recognizes and rejects the rebellion of Satan, and someday even the wicked will recognize the rebellion of Satan for what it is and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, the question is, what will the people who now, who claim to be Christ's, do with that same Christ? Will they allow Christ to make them heavenly? This is stage three. Will those who claim the name of Christ live lives of Christ-likeness? I believe it is for the revealing of these sons of God that the creation eagerly awaits. Let's continue. Romans chapter 8, go to verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. 
So he bound this creation under this groaning pain, not just to make it suffer for a while, but there's good news at the end of it. There's hope. Verse 21, because the creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our, what's the word? Body. The redemption of our body. Apparently what we're going to get at the second coming is a new body. Not a new character. Let me let Mrs. White help me out here. Christ Object Lessons 331. A character formed according to the divine likeness is the only treasure that we can take from this world to the next. You ever think about that? When Jesus Christ comes in all of His glory, will you be ready to step seamlessly from this world to the next? Even more plainly. I can't think of how you could write it any more plainly. Verse, uh, our high calling, page 278. When Christ shall come, our vile bodies are to be changed. Praise the Lord. And made like His glorious body. But the vile character will not be made holy then. The transformation of character must take place before His coming. Friends, there's a difference between simply a transaction that gets you in and a transformation that fits you in. We need a higher picture of the plan of salvation. Basically, the change, the glorification that we're promised that will take place when Christ returns is merely the reception of a glorious body that will correspond harmoniously with the glorious character we have formed through Christ's dwelling within us. Philippians chapter 3. Again, Paul comes back to the same theme. Philippians chapter 3. Starting with verse 20. Scripture reads, For our citizenship is in where? I must wait for you to catch up. I'm sorry. For our citizenship is where? In heaven. Not as it does, notice it doesn't say our citizenship will be in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven right now, today, if we claim to be Christ. Now she says, now he says, from which, speaking of heaven, we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 21, who will transform our lowly, what? Body, that it may be conformed to His glorious body, according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. I love this statement. Those who take no pleasure in thinking and talking of God in this life will not enjoy the life that is to come where God is ever-present dwelling among His people. Have you ever thought about that? Somebody has rhetorically asked you, would Jesus enjoy what you're doing? Could you do what you're doing with God sitting right next to you? And a lot of times like, ah, I hate that question. But it has some validity, right? I mean, we're going to dwell with Him forever. 
Those who take no pleasure in thinking of talking of God, of God in this life will not enjoy the life that is soon to come, where God is ever-present dwelling among His people. But those who love to think of God will be in their element. They're going to walk in the room and they're like, ah, this is my place. Breathing in the atmosphere of heaven. It's like, ah, oh, this even smells like home. This is good. Those who on earth love the thought of heaven will be happy in its holy associations and pleasures. And then she quotes Revelation 22 again. They shall see his face and his name shall be in their foreheads. As my friend David Ashrick likes to say, God is going to take everyone to heaven, comma, who would be happy there. The question is, is not God going to get you into heaven? The question is, do you actually want to fit into heaven or not? Do you really even want to go? Why is character such why, why did God put such a, a premium on character? Why is it such a big deal to Him? Well, let's take that idea off the back of the shelf, the Exodus 33, Revelation 22 paradox. The God who invites you to see His face, but then says, if you see My face, you'll die. How will this be resolved? I think we find an answer in 1 John chapter 2, in verse 28. And now, little children, three critical words as we plea, fill me, our earnest plea. And now, little children, abide in Him. Why? That when He appears a reference to the second coming, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. How can we see the face of a holy God? It's by allowing that same God to make us holy before He returns. 1 John chapter 3, go one chapter over. 1 John chapter 3. Beloved, now we are children of God. Present tense, just like our citizenship is in heaven. Now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. So apparently now you can be a child of God and there still be growth in the future. I'm not preaching instant sanctification here. I'm just saying that God has a higher ideal than simply getting you and putting you in heaven. He wants to make you heavenly first. Now we are the children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know. He's like, I don't know exactly what it looks like, but we know this. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him. Not we shall be made like Him or transformed like Him or changed into being like Him. We shall be like Him. Why do we know it? For we shall, what's it say? See Him as He is. You know, when Jesus comes back, He's not going to be just the veiled glory, no beauty or comeliness that we might be attracted to Him. No, 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 no. You know how every now and then Ms. White talks about divinity flashing through humanity, like little pieces of it shooting out. No, 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 no. When Jesus comes back, He's coming in all of His glory. He's going to burst through the sky. Shwa! It's as close as I can come to reenacting it for you, okay? But, but he's not going to hide. He's not going to be veiled. He's like, here I am. 
Are you ready to look at me yet? Can you even look at me? And the gospel writer says, we are going to be just like him because I know we're going to get to see him. And the implication is, and live. Plenty of people are going to see Jesus come back and not live. Do you see the difference? Jesus himself said it in the most sublime way. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart. Why? For they shall see God. And again, the implication is, and not die from it. That's a blessing, not a curse. They shall see God. So reason number one why character development is so crucial is because it actually gets you through the second coming. It prepares you to meet a holy God and live in a holy place in the society of holy beings. Does that make sense, yes or no? As Seventh Adventists, we have a greater understanding of end-time events than do any other people on the planet. When we present the themes of Daniel and revelation and time prophecy and then we we juxtapose that against a snapshot of current world events it makes a pretty airtight case that jesus is in fact coming soon amen Amen. that's a powerful message it's a it's an alarming message it's a stirring message it's a needed message but if that's all we say is that jesus is coming soon that's not necessarily good news for those who don't like jesus can't be the entirety of our message. In his recent book, uh, Adventism's Greatest Need, uh, Pastor Ron Cluzet writes that Christ is far more interested in our fitness for his return than we should be in the timing of his return. He tells us he's coming soon, not so that we can know the day or the hour, but so we can be prepared to go from this world to the next. You know, when the term Adventist was originally invoked by our pioneers, it wasn't because they expected to be the people who lived to the second coming. They wanted to be the people who lived through the second coming. And that's a big difference. The earth will be literally filled with people who will have lived to the second coming. But how many will survive? I mean, I wholeheartedly endorse and I embrace and I, and I, I support the idea that GYC is set that we will see Jesus return, and I believe it in my bones, that we will see Jesus in our lifetime. Amen. But friends, living to the second coming has no inherent value. The question is, will you still be alive after He returns? Mercy. Or are we just a bunch of the coincidental people who happen to be here at this time in earth's history? There's a difference between living to it and living through it. That's reason number one why character development is so important. But did you know, and this goes back to that we need to present a greater controversy, there's more involved in the great controversy than simply saving you. And I know to you that's a big deal because you're all the you that you've got. Right? (laughs) Getting you to heaven is big to you. And I agree, that should be a motivation. You need to get ready because Jesus is coming. I'm fine with that. But did you know that there's more involved in the great controversy than simply saving you? And I'm not even talking about simply saving other fallen people on this planet. Now you're like, wait a minute, there's fallen people on other planets? No. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying either. But the plan of redemption, the what Jesus worked out on the cross, His shed blood, 
does more than simply get fallen people into heaven. It actually restores the universe and makes it secure for eternity. There's more to the plan of redemption than simply saving lost people. It's actually recreating the entire universe into the image and glory of God. Let me, let me explain this to you. In Nahum chapter 1, verse 9, God makes a very big promise. I'd say it's his biggest promise ever. And he's made some big promises. Like, I go to prepare a place for you and I, I'm going to come back and get you. Those are big promises. But Nahum chapter 1, verse 9, listen to the words. What do you imagine against the Lord? He will make an utter end. Affliction will not rise up the second time. Once evil has run its course and the great controversy has ended, there will not be another controversy. Amen. So how can you wrap your minds around it? How can there be a God who creates free will, free moral agents, who can choose to do whatever they feel like doing, and yet that same God can guarantee that sin will never rise again? How can that be possible outside of the development of the character of Christ in each citizen of heaven. Notice this, Sermons and Talks, Volume 2, page 294. Without perfection of character, no one can enter the pearly gates of the city of God. For if with all our imperfections we were permitted to enter that city, there would soon be in heaven a second rebellion. We must be tried and chosen and found faithful and true. Upon the purification of our character rests our only hope of eternal life. Now that's not to say that the Christ-like character causes us to be saved. Only the blood of Jesus saves sinners. Are we agreed? But a Christ-like character is the only guarantee that we will never choose to rebel again. Think about it. There's a lot riding on your character. Gabriel wants you to be there for the right reasons. When, when Jesus was executed on the cross at the cruel hands of Satan, Gabriel said to Christ, uh, sanctified imagination, he was my friend, that Lucifer, and I really wanted to see what he's all about. But now I know his true character. He's a murderer. He deserves to die. Lord, the plan of execution can go forward. But then Jesus turns to him and said, that's great, thank you, but... I want to bring some of them back here. You see, my plan is not just the plan of execution. My plan is the plan of redemption. Amen. I don't want to just end sin. I want to actually save sinners. And I'm going to make them your neighbor, Gabriel. I'm going to take Cameron DeVazier and put him in the palace right next door to you. And Gabriel's like, slow down. Uh, you know, we keep a record here. And no, uh-uh, no. Lord, I appreciate that you want to get him in, but he doesn't fit. And Christ's like, yeah, but he will. Let me do some work in him. And he sends out the Holy Spirit. Have you ever noticed that, I'm sorry, we haven't really talked about the Holy Spirit yet, and some of you are like, there's a big sign, it's talking about the Holy Spirit right here. <laughs> you know, I came to GYC, I wanted to learn how to preach better. 
That's the Holy Spirit. I wanted to learn how to... You know, I'm tired of just finding my car keys. I want to speak in tongues. You know? I want to raise the dead. I want to be a missionary. I want to do something real for Christ. I want to see the church of God, God's remnant people, galvanized into an, or, uh, an organism for evangelism, like an army with banners. That's what I came to GYC for. And all you're doing is talking about the second coming. You might have a false conception of what the work of the Holy Spirit actually is. All those things are good things. They're great things. They're necessary things. They will be given. They're promises of God. But they're secondary. The primary function of the Holy Spirit is not to make you more powerful, but to make you more Christ-like. Do you see the difference? The primary role of the Holy Spirit is to work in you to make you more like Jesus. Please don't have raised all the money to get here, traveled hours and stuffy buses and come all the way to Houston over Christmas break just to become informed about the Holy Spirit. Make a commitment to God that by His grace and indwelling power you will be transformed by the Holy Spirit into a heavenly being who is comfortable in heaven. In the book Education, everybody knows this famous quote. Higher than the highest human thought can reach is what? All right, three people knew that quote. (laughs) Higher than the highest human thought can reach is what? Ideal for his children. We all know that sentence, but do we know the next sentence? Godliness, Christ-likeness, God-likeness is the goal to be reached. You know, the natural inclination of sinful fallen man to the revelation of the glory of God is to hide This is what happened when Adam and Eve were confronted by God who was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. We were afraid and we hid. This is what happened to Moses at the burning bush before he was the new man in Christ. He was afraid to look upon God. And in the book of Revelation, we read the reaction of those who are unprepared to, who happen to be living to the second coming but are not prepared to go through it. Revelation chapter 6. Verse 16, they say to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath can come and who is able to stand? And notice they're not afraid of the sickle or the sword or or the power or the might. They're afraid of his face. I want to close tonight with... Mrs. White's description of what happened when Jesus cleared the temple for the first time. You can find the biblical account in John chapter 2. But the picture I always had in my mind when he cleared the temple, when he purified that place, was that he came in with the whip, you know, and it was all chaos and doves and lambs and these money changers and all. And he just starts ripping the place apart. Gosh, and it's just this chaos and utter torment. And then all of a sudden, he to get out of here, get out of here, runs everybody out, then it finally gets quiet, you know. And then the little children come to him. That's the picture I had. As he beholds the scene, indignation, authority, and power are expressed in his countenance. The attention of the people is attracted to him. When Jesus walks in the room, he doesn't have to flip over a table. His presence just commands authority. Notice this. The eyes of those engaged in their unholy traffic are riveted upon his face. They cannot withdraw their gaze. 
They feel that this man reads their inmost thoughts and discovers their hidden motives. Some attempt to conceal their faces as if their evil deeds were written upon their countenances to be scanned by those searching eyes. The confusion is hushed. And notice he hasn't flipped a table, moved his arm at all. He's just looking. The sound of traffic and bargaining has ceased. The silence becomes painful. A sense of awe overpowers the assembly. It is as if they were arraigned before the tribunal of God to answer for their deeds. Looking upon Christ, they behold divinity flash through the garb of humanity. The majesty of heaven stands as the judge will stand at the last day, not now encircled with the glory that will then attend him, but with the same power to read the soul. His eye sweeps over the multitude, taking in every individual. His form seems to rise above them in commanding dignity. And a divine light illuminates his countenance. He speaks and his clear ringing voice, the same that upon Mount Sinai proclaimed the law that priests and rulers are transgressing, is heard echoing through the arches of the temple. Take these things hence. Make not my father's house a house of merchandise. Slowly descending the stair steps, descending the steps, and raising the scourge of cords gathered upon entering the enclosure, he bids the bargaining company depart from the precincts of the temple. With a zeal and severity he has never before manifested, he overthrows the tables of the money changers. The coins fall, ringing sharply upon the marble pavement. No pres- none presume to question his authority. None dare to stop to gather up their ill-gotten gain. Jesus does not smite them with the whip of cords, but in his hand that simple scourge seems terrible as a flaming sword. Officers of the temple, speculating priests, brokers and cattle traders with their sheep and oxen rush from the place with the one thought of escaping from the condemnation, not of his whip, not of his mighty right arm, the condemnation of his presence. I believe with all of my heart that this is the generation that will live to the second coming. But that's not hopeful enough. That's not promise enough. For countless people in the world, that's just coincidental. The question I want to know for myself, and I want you to be asking for yourself, is if Jesus were, am I ready? I don't want to just go to heaven. I want to be fit for heaven now. When I walk into those gates, I want to breathe the air and say, Ah, this makes sense. This is home. Even more than that, when the eyes of my Savior scan the multitude and land on my eyes, I don't want to be ashamed and hide my face. I want to be pure in heart because I want to see God. And I don't want to ask you a question. Does, even if you disagreed with me, did it at least make sense? Raise your hand. Did it at least make sense what we're talking about? Praise the Lord. Clear communication. You might all disagree, but at least you understood the message. Now I want to make an appeal. 
It's simple. It won't be long. But if you want to not just think about salvation in terms of a transaction that gets you in, but you're saying, Lord, I want to step on higher ground. I don't want to be here anymore. I don't want to just be a citizen of heaven. I want to be a, I'm a citizen of earth. I want to be a citizen of heaven starting right now tonight. Lord, I want you to not just get me in. I want you to fit me in to the society of angels. Lord, transform my character. Make me like you. If that's your wish, will you stand with me tonight? That's not the end of the appeal. That's just getting you to your feet. That was the easy one. Now, there might be one person, and I'm not looking for the promo video moment where everyone comes pouring down the aisle. I don't care. But somewhere out there in this congregation tonight might be one person who has never made that commitment before. I don't know why you're here. I don't know how you got here. But someone here has never made a commitment to Christ, a radical, total, life-transforming, not just a transaction like, okay, I agree. But Lord, I see a bigger picture. I see a higher standard. I want that greater goal. I want to be like Jesus, even down to my very character. And Lord, I want to make that commitment right here tonight in front of this congregation. I've never committed my life to Christ before. But now I understand the end game and I want it. Lord, I'm in if you can make me like you. I'm ready for that commitment. If there's even one person who says, Lord, tonight is my night. And I want to make that commitment. I want to be baptized. I want to be die in your death. And I want to be raised to a new life in Christ. I want you to come down front. Is there even one person tonight who says, Lord, I've never made that commitment, but by the grace of God, tonight is my night. Praise the Lord, brother. I'm not going to drag it out long, but if there's another one, praise the Lord. And I'll extend the call just a little bit. There might be some older people here who have made that commitment, but for all intents and purposes, you've thrown it away with years of living away. And the idea of Christ's second coming is not a hopeful thought, but through the grace of Christ, you see a brighter hope, you see a brighter future, and you see that God still loves you, He still cares about you, and He's calling you home tonight. Is there anyone who says, Lord, I'm ready to come back home? And I don't want it just a paper transaction. I don't just want my name on the books, Lord. I want to be fit into the society of heaven. Bless you, bless you. Come on down. I don't know what your story is. But Jesus is calling you tonight to higher ground. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.